Hello, welcome back to Creative Chit Chat. I'm Ryan McLeod and this week is episode number 65 and I'm joined by Steph Liddell. Um, she's a, a ceramicist, um, she makes jewellery, I suppose more ornamental stuff and also sort of more functional vases, um, pots, bowls, that type of thing. Um, and she's developed this uh, distinctive style using patterns so it becomes synonymous in everything that she creates um, and th- this was a, I mean, it was a really fun episode to record um, sort of, it was a really relaxed um, funny chat we touch on the the natural Illuminati um, which I'm hoping is a range that will be coming out soon one that you might not hear about though and um, scented jewellery as well we go into that and see how that could actually work so but I mean, the, what we actually do, which I found fascinating, is go quite deep into um, Steph's process and how ceramics actually works, and how she she uses that as an art form, and how she develops her work. Um, and another theme that I mean, it's sort of common, and a few people I spoke to is this idea of taking your career to the next level. Um, so how she scales up her production, but maintains her uh, the integrity and the sort of handmade aspect of what she does. Yeah, so we go through all that, and I, I, I genuinely found the the, the process um, of ceramics um, fascinating. Something I'd definitely like to to be, to give a go. Um, so yeah, might be a side project coming soon. One little thing to say about the podcast: um, we've got one more episode, um, and then we're going to call it for this uh, season. Um, so yeah, episode number sixty-six. Um, yeah, I think we become obsessed by round numbers, don't we? And sort of series and seasons. So, yeah, let's just cut it. Episode 66 will be the last in season two of Creative Chit Chat. Um, and then we'll be back sort of late August. Um, so next week I've got Jan Sesnik, um, which is a, a sort of mad whirlwind conversation, which I think is really nicely representative of how his mind works. Um but yeah, so uh, to keep up to date with the podcast, it's at CCC Dundee on Twitter and Instagram and facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash CCC Dundee. So all the information will be on there, including when the podcast is coming back and who to expect. So, um, yeah, let's just get into the episode. So this is number 65 and this is with Steph Liddell. Uh, yeah, so I moved to Dundee 10 years ago almost, it'll be 10 years this September um, came here to go to art school, studied at Duncan Jordanson um, I actually studied illustration, not ceramics so I didn't even pick up a lump of clay when I was at art school that wasn't till afterwards So why, um, what led you into illustration as a discipline? I think it was um, so I got to the end of general course and I was kind of torn between illustration textiles and fine art and I was really interested in that place where design and fine art sort of overlap and that intersection between them and illustration felt like it was a place that gave me the freedom to explore both of those so it was an opportunity to learn learn how to work to a brief and learn how to sort of apply design mechanisms but also the freedom to explore projects that were self-directed um and also because of the printmaking department as well. I absolutely love printmaking. It's not something that I've not done any printmaking in a few years now. But I done loads of screen printing when I was at art school. And before 
even studying illustration, absolutely loved it. So, yeah, that was a big pull for it. Yeah, mainly because it was that kind of, that sort of strange little undefined space where it's it's not quite design, it's not quite fine art, and there's just quite a lot of freedom around it. So, yeah, I ended up doing that. And uh, my degree show was very different to what I make now. The the drawn style is still quite similar, still sort of bold lines and quite a graphic style. But um, my degree show, I made these like <laughs> giant soft sculptures of comfort foods. So the project was called Home Comforts and um, there were like literal interpretations of comfort foods. So there was a lasagna the size of a single bed you could get inside. <laughs> she currently lives in my mum's loft and she's about to move house. Um, so I think it's it's travelling up to Dundee this weekend. <laughs> it gets to find a home in my studio somewhere. <laughs> um, so there was that. There was a, this big pie that a hot water bottle went inside. It was a screen printed pie. Hot water bottle went inside it and there were two arms came out the side. Um, so they're all stuffed, sort of textile printed and stuffed. And you could tie them around yourself. So it was food that would literally hug you back. Um, and a giant bit of hand-quilted penny pasta as well that was big enough. It was the size of my forearm. I could stick my arm down the middle of it. Um, and they were all hand-printed hand and then hand-sewn. So I think um, I'm just a bit of a glutton for punishment, really. <laughs> but um, I think sort of that that handmade aspect really important to me and it's kind of something that's still really prevalent in my ceramics as well. So if I'm imagining that you hadn't done a lot of that sort of textile stuff at that point no. before. So if there is something that you have no experience of, but you know you need to learn in order to achieve your sort of vision, yeah. how do you approach that? I just go for it. <laughs> I just throw myself in at the deep end, basically. Um, and it's kind of exactly how I ended up making ceramics as well. Because um, I've no... Pretty much all my ceramic knowledge is self-taught. My only sort of ceramic training as such as um I don't know like an eight week short course at Arbroath College a few years ago that's how I started making ceramics it was something I'd wanted to try for a while and I'd struggled to find access to it in Dundee so I thought I'll, I'll just go do that it was like two hours on a Thursday morning I think I was the only one that wasn't retired in the class <laughs> and it was just uh, some sort of like basic hand building but it sort of gave me that taste to start like figuring out what clay feels like and the opportunity to get stuff fired in their kiln um, and I just absolutely fell in love with it felt like the first sort of lump of clay I picked up just I was like oh yeah this is it this is amazing it's, you know you start with what's essentially a lump of mud and poke and prod at it and then a few hours later you've got something like that will be usable once it's been fired um so I just started buying buying bags of clay and I didn't have a studio space at that point either so it was just hanging out on this tiny little two-person table that I had in my living room with my bag of clay making stuff and then I moved into a studio space and moved to clay with me, which was sensible. <laughs> so how many years after graduation was that? That was, um, that would have been about three years after I graduated. I had, yeah, a good sort of two two or three years of just not making much at all. Um, I sort of graduated, I was working I was working in DC in the shop, 
but I was also working um, another part-time job as well and kind of just struggling to figure out how I continued making stuff without a studio space and without the time really to do it either. Um, so yeah, that was kind of my first first steps back into properly making. I suppose I'd, even when I wasn't making through that couple of years, I still had sketchbooks and I was still drawing a lot of things in sketchbooks and made a few little zines and things, but I didn't really make anything that got out the sketchbook really apart from those wee zines until that. So, at the, I mean, was it at the point that you were looking at studio space? Was that the point at which you thought, oh, actually, I might, this might be my career, this might be a way of actually making some money and actually moving yeah. away from the part-time jobs and into that? Yeah, it was. But, I mean, um, at first it was kind of just like, I really just love making this and I just want to have the space to make it. And... um I started working, I sort of went from working a couple of jobs to just working at DC in the shop um, as a retail supervisor pretty much full-time. So even though I was working full-time, it meant that I had regular days off. So it meant those days off could be spent in my studio. So at first I was kind of just like, I just want to make some things and just do it for like the love of it. Um, so I just kind of started making little dishes and started off making some jewellery that was um, they were sort of ceramic beads they were totally hefty my mum still got one that I saw her just like recently and she had it on and it weighs a ton it's so heavy um, there was only, I only made about five of them or something but they were all sort of handmade beads and then all the beads on it were hand drawn they were very laborious um, but that was sort of the first jewellery things that I made and I was like, well, actually, quite quite like that. Maybe that's something that I could explore a bit more. And then just sort of by chance one day made a necklace that was sort of the semi-circle shape that I'm kind of like known for now in my jewellery. Made one out of that out of... Um, I had like a tub of Nescafe Azira sitting next to me. Cut round the lid of that and cut it in half. And I was like, oh, that could, that could be an interesting necklace shape. So, yeah, I just sort of started playing around with that shape and putting patterns on it that I'd been drawn on a lot of other things and then decided that I would just go for it and kind of make a make a collection of work and see what happens. So the first, um, the first time that I sort of took it to the public, I suppose, was at um, DC's Christmas Market in December 2015. And I had to work that day, so I couldn't even be in my stall. So Becca Clark very kindly covered the stall for me. And I think she's still like a better saleswoman than I am. <laughs> I should just get her to do everything, like anything public facing, or just get Becca Clark on there. <laughs> She'll charm everyone into buying things. <laughs> but um, it was such a, it was a total confidence boost to be like, put things out publicly and find that people actually wanted to buy them and wear them and that they were sort of getting as much joy from them as I was making them um, so yeah that was sort of from there I kind of started making more of them and started approaching stockists and finding that yeah there was actually an audience for it <laughs> amazingly <laughs> so I mean it sounds like the like your process of creating especially at the start was, was very much play 
yeah, focused. Yeah. And it wasn't necessarily sort of people will like this, this will be a commercially successful thing. It's more like that will look good and I'll like that and Yeah. I suppose is it a case much. of like I would wear that or I would use that? Yeah, absolutely. Um and also kinda of part of the reason that I start wanted to try ceramics was partly it was just like a new a new surface to draw on. But also it was kind of that link back to my degree show and the work I'd been doing there about food and home. Um, and I sort of wanted to try ceramics because it felt like feels like ceramics sort of represents so much of what makes a home. You know, it's this material that we're so familiar with because we eat off it every day and we have it in our houses and we're, we know we know how a mug works, essentially. Um, but also as a material, it's something that's so, so hard wearing. But then at the same time, sort of one knock can break it and it can completely shatter and that kind of felt like it sort of represented a home to me at that point that, um, yeah, it was hardware and an everyday substance, but also had this fragility to it. Um, and a lot of the a lot of the patterns that I still use now still link back to that, but are very, very pared back and very minimal. So the curve pattern that I use is inspired by macaroni pasta, the dash. I call it dash, but to me it's rice. <laughs> um, the grid one, I always think that it looks a bit like potato waffles, but also kind of that um, traditional like checked tablecloth pattern that you get. And then there's one that I can't really... All the other ones have got names that are removed from the food, and then there's one pattern that I just I just call noodle. It looks like noodles, it is noodles, and <laughs> just settled on the name noodle for that one for some reason. Um, yeah. And do those, I mean, are those like four of a hundred patterns that you tried? I've got a sketchbook full of patterns. I still draw patterns all the time. Um, but I've got this one sketchbook, which it was part of Fun A Day a few years ago, actually. And um, I think that was maybe before, I think that was before I'd started making ceramics. I'd done the sketchbook and for Fun A Day, I decided I'd draw a pattern a day. Um, and a lot of the, a lot of the patterns when I look back at it now it's like oh that's where that came from um, and it's still quite a I, I made some pots just a couple of months ago actually that I put a pattern from that sketchbook onto because it's still quite a rich resource I suppose some like there's some terrible patterns in it but so like oh it's quite nice to sort of look back through things and see the same patterns and the same shapes re-emerging sort of Almost subconsciously, you're like, oh, no, that's been on my mind for a while. <laughs> so maybe it's time to put that into into practice. So do you find that you work in a sketchbook first before you go into ceramic? Yeah, always. Just thinks maybe not the, the most common way for a ceramicist to work, but I think it's that background and illustration. I always, yeah, I always kind of start in a sketchbook, start off with usually a pretty rubbish drawing, <laughs> what I'm going to make. Um, but it's, I've always got at least two sketchbooks on me and it's just a way for me to kind of quickly take note of ideas if I'm on the train or just if sort of a shape, if I see something I think like, oh, that could, that's an interesting shape. There's always just a little, a little doodle hanging out in my sketchbook. So, I mean, you said that's probably not what a traditional ceramicist does. I don't does. think so. 
So I mean, what what? How does that differ to what you do? Like, how do they do they start with a lump? I think so. I don't actually know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm kind of like coming at it from maybe a slightly different angle to a lot of people who would have studied ceramics, for example. I think they probably start in a more 3D way. So I've started over the last year or so maybe making paper maquettes of things before, sometimes before making it in clay. Actually, quite often I just go from drawing straight to clay. But occasionally if there's something that I kind of want to figure out how I need to make that shape happen, I'll make it in a paper maquette first. Um, I have a suspicion, but I don't know if it's true that most ceramicists maybe start 3D and don't bother with the sketchbook part so much. And yeah, maybe just start with a lump of clay on a wheel or something, for example, and make it, or maybe make a model, and then make the thing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe everyone's doing it in a sketchbook. <laughs> so, I mean, going back to your... Um the, the sort of Christmas market at DCA. Yeah. Um, and you said that, that sort of gave you confidence in the work that you were creating. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did you go from there, sort of from that first collection that you created to growing your audience, if you like? Yeah, it's been quite a long journey. It's only been a few years, but it feels like a long journey. Um, I mean, I look back at that first work that I made compared to what I make now. There's a huge change in what I've made so I think like initially my audience was probably quite local I've used Instagram quite a lot to kind of grow my audience as well um but yeah that sort of first market that I'd done that was kind of the first that anyone had really seen it apart from a few photos on Instagram but at that point it was mainly just my pals that were following me and then I think a huge thing for me sort of gaining gaining a wider audience has been actually through shops so DCA shop was my first my first stockist and then from there I sort of started approaching other stockists across the UK um, and they've kind of given me that platform to reach so much further than I probably could have on my own to kind of give me that platform for their audience to become my audience I guess. So when you were looking for stockists um, what what were you looking for in them? Um, I look for I look for stockers. I'm still like sort of constantly on the scout for them. But I look for stockers who are sort of quite brave with their choices, who are design led, and who support designer makers and support handmade. So less mass produced stuff that you can get anywhere, and more yeah, more sort of bold designer-led work that's made by actual people. Mm. Yes, I think... I, <laughs> I don't know if I should admit this, but actually, like, one of my best resources for finding stockists that I want to approach has been um, Tom Pigeon's website. Because <laughs> they've got a list of all their stockists. <laughs> so like, when I was starting out, I kind of just I went on their website and I was like, oh, that's a great list. <laughs> so kind of just, like, methodically started working my way through them <laughs> and sort of been like well if you like their work <laughs> how about this <laughs> but I mean there are commonalities in the, the the things that you do I mean a lot of very bold geometric yeah. shapes um, 
Yeah, and so why not? Totally, yeah. If they're going to put the list there, then they're going to want people to read it, right? Yeah. So. so since then, I've sort of not every designer or maker has a list of stockists on their website, but if they do, I always kind of have a little scout out to see if there's anyone that I've not heard of before or that I think, like, oh, no, that could be a nice fit. <laughs> so I've just got this kind of ever-growing list of places that are sort of like on my hit list <laughs> and I don't um it takes quite a lot of admin time to get around to actually approaching all those stockists so there's a lot of ones that I haven't yet approached but they're I'm coming for them <laughs> so have you got a list of your stockists on your website I do yeah <laughs> thought I'd, I'd give back yeah, to the I was creative thinking, community yeah, you could be a total hypocrite <laughs> here if you didn't have a list on right yeah. <laughs> like oh no that's mine <laughs> not sharing <laughs> No, it's there. So one so that people can find me and hopefully buy something. <laughs> but yeah, also because it's like I know it's been a great resource for me, so mm. maybe it'll be a good resource for someone else. <laughs> Although mine isn't as extensive as Tom Pigeon. I definitely check theirs out. <laughs> and so I mean you've you're also part of this a tea green pop ups yeah. as well. Yeah, I've done um, quite a few of theirs now. So how's that been being part of that? Um, it's been good, yeah. They've got a lot of good designers that they work with, so I sort of know that if I choose to do one of their events, that it's going to be like a really high level of um, other people that are showcasing as well. Because there's nothing worse than sort of turn up to a market or something and finding that you're next to someone whose work just is on a completely different level from you, like. I done one once. It was a, it was a ceramics market, but I was chairing a table, and I got put on a table with someone who was making, sort of stuff from Fimo that got baked in the oven that wasn't particularly. Which I mean, there's some really great Fimo work that's very design led and looks amazing and is definitely worth the price. But this stuff, maybe wasn't that, um, and their prices were very very low, as well. So it makes it quite difficult if you end up in a at an event where you're kind of surrounded by people whose prices are lower than yours or who maybe do who maybe make things as a hobby and I don't mean that to sound that's not a criticism of people who make things as a hobby because I think that's a great thing to do um but yeah there's kind of there is a difference between being a designer maker and someone who maybe crochets like baby shawls or something and they're two very different markets and two very different price points as well so if you're kind of next to someone who is sort of making that type of stuff it's kind of difficult to justify why you're selling a necklace for 40 quid um, so whereas with the tea green stuff you know that everyone that's there it's kind of they've got the same goals in mind as you like they're doing it as a living pretty much or as part of their living I suppose there's two aspects to that. You being part of a sort of group like that, it doesn't they'll ensure that they're curating yeah. the people they're bringing in are of a certain quality and of a certain mindset. But also at the same time, they will be create, curating an audience to bring into that space to sell them the products. Yeah, definitely. So um, Jo, who runs Tea Green, yeah, she does a really great job at kind of curating everyone that applies for the events to make sure that they are kind of set well together and there's not going to be one person that's like 
what's that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they all kind of sit really well together. But I think as well, she's sort of been growing her own audience for quite a few years now. And since the events are quite regular and they sort of pop up at the same time of the year, every year in the same places, quite like the Kibble Palace one in Glasgow, you know that it's going to be on in summer, you know it's going to be on at Christmas. So I think people kind of know, know to look out for it and they know what sort of designers are going to be there, even if they know that the people there might change. They kind of know what to expect in a way. So you spend a lot of time at, at sort of markets and other things, sort of standing behind the stall and... Recently I have, yeah. I didn't do as many last year. Um, last year I kind of put put all my eggs in one basket and done quite a few in London at the Independent Ceramics Market, which is run by DIY Art Market. So I kind of decided, I was like, no, I'm just going to do those ones and it'll be less work and just as much money. And it wasn't. <laughs> it was less work, but it was also less money. <laughs> so um, I actually found a... Sort of the Christmas one that I'd done there just was a total washout for me. It just, I had a few sales, but actually people were, just weren't really responding to it in the way that they have at a lot of other markets. Um, so is, it, is there anything in particular that you, you could attribute that to? I'm not so sure. I think the Christmas one, there was it was snowing that day, so the footfall wasn't as high as it could have been. But... Um, Sometimes you kind of just need to wait, right? It's not, it's not my market. It's fair enough. Um, I don't know for those ones. I'd kind of done a couple of them, and I'm not sure if it's maybe just like it was a new face. There was a lot of people there who were quite established and who'd done those events quite a lot. So people know who they are. They've met them before. They've seen their work before. So then they've kind of got that trust in them to buy them. Whereas if you just rock up and you're like, oh yeah. Just got the train down from Dundee. It's <laughs> like, who are you? Where'd you come from? Why would I buy it? Also, maybe you just couldn't understand my accent. <laughs> like, it's what? You're making what? <laughs> um, so this year, I've kind of flipped the opposite way and just been like, so I've done hardly any markets this year, so I'm just going to all the markets this year. Um, so yeah, the last, since the start of May, I've done four or five and I've got another one this weekend. So I'm feeling pretty worn out. Um, they're really tiring. <laughs> they're a great way to kind of meet people, actually speak to people in person and to get people to interact with your work because um, I use padding for um, the ceramics I make, which is a really incredible, special um, ceramic. It's was used by the Victorians to mimic marble. So it's got this incredibly smooth feeling to it, which um, the clay feels that way anyway, but then I sand it and then I polish it with a diamond sanding pad to get it super, super smooth. So it feels really silky and nice, and it's one of those things that's quite hard to portray on the internet. Or, um, you know, if you're not actually there to pick it up and feel it. So it's really nice to get out and actually get people to interact with the work and to meet people face to face um, and yeah just to kind of get out the studio a little bit as well because I'm in a, in a studio on my own which is great but also sometimes it gets a bit can get a bit lonely sometimes when you're there drawing dashes on everything that comes in your path 
<laughs> for days on end. So it's, yeah, it's really nice to actually get out of the studio and go to events like this and meet people face to face. You're absolutely knackered by the end of it. It's very mentally draining, I think, to just be chatting to people for sort of 16 or 20 hours solid. Um, and it must be quite repetitive in that, that yeah, aspect of it. Yeah, thing. definitely. There comes a point where you've sort of said the same the same phrase <laughs> over and over and you think, are those words in the right order? What am I saying? <laughs> yeah, you've maybe only got 20, 30 seconds to capture someone. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes you you sort of, you catch them and you start chatting away about your stuff and you see them sort of glazing over. And you're like, I'm just going to let you go. <laughs> but then other people, you'll maybe be a bit more cautious and just say something, but then they come back at you with loads of questions, which is great. Um, I think the nice thing about markets as well, the last few ones I've done, there's been, I've had loads of really nice chats with people and met loads of lovely people. And the people that have bought things and take, taken them away, it feels like they've kind of just came in and got the thing that sort of was just the right fit for them. So um, I was at the fruit market, design market last weekend, and they had this um, bottle shape that I'd made at the start of the year. It was a one-off. It's hand-built, sort of little bottle shape with a little handle and dashes all over it and a yellow rim around the bottom. And I kind of made it thinking that I would keep it. <laughs> but I put it on Instagram and quite a lot of people liked it. So I was like, oh, I'll take it around markets. I'll have it as a one-off. And every time I've taken it somewhere, it's got loads and loads of attention, but no one's bought it. And then on Friday night at the design market, it's gotten quite a bit of attention from a couple of people as well. And then this couple came in and they just like totally fell in love with it, which is great. And they were kind of deciding what they should buy, if they should buy that or if they should buy like one of my sort of smaller dash pots. And they decided to go for this big bottle in the end. And they were they were so pleased with it. It was so lovely. And I got an email from them on the Saturday sort of telling me how how happy they were with their purchase and it, it feels so nice when someone gets in touch or even just when someone buys something and you know that it's just the right fit for them that they kind of, they love it just as much as, just as much as you do, really. Just nice. So you sort of touched on your, um, your studio space, um, which is based at Wasps. It is, yeah. Um, so what, what does that actually look like? A mess. <laughs> it's the the short and honest answer. <laughs> yeah, it's um it's a great space actually. So it's in it's in Wasps, which is in Meadowmill, it's an old Victorian jute mill. So it's ideal to make ceramics in. It's a building that was designed not to burn down. So it's a great place to have a kiln. Um so my studio is one of the one of the smaller ones that's in there, but it's just it's just the right size for me. Um so it's on second floor and it's got these huge double height ceilings and a massive, massive window. So there's great light in it. Um, I've got a little mezzanine, which is just, which is where the lasagna will be going. <laughs> <laughs> it's currently full of boxes and I'm not really putting it to good use. Um, but the rest of the space, I've got a, a great big sort of stand and workbench, which is where everything gets made and gets glazed. I've got a little top loader kiln, which needs quite a bit of space around it so it doesn't set everything on fire. So it's kind of on one side, the bench's on the other side, and then I've got just loads of racking and shelves with 
PCs in various stages of cast, but not yet decorated or bisque fired, finished, ready to go somewhere. Um, and then in the middle of the floor, currently there's quite a lot of bin bags <laughs> and lots of buckets of clay. Because <laughs> from, like, say, say an idea has come out of your sketchbook mm-hmm. um, and you've started to pick up the clay, how long does that take from sort of picking that first piece of clay up to saying this piece is now finished? It can depend. So if it's something that... Um, if it's a shape that I'm kind of just making for the first time or something that I've decided that I want to hand build, I can go in. I do quite a lot. But I used to do a lot of slab building. I don't do as much anymore. So, uh, no idea what slab building yeah. is. So, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so slab building is when you get your lump of clay, you put it out and you roll it out into sheets, almost like you're rolling out pastry. So you roll it out in sheets and then you cut shapes out it so if you wanted to make so you want to make a vessel that's like a classic sort of cylinder or mug shape you cut out a long strip a long rectangular strip as if it was a sheet of paper and then it kind of stands up on its end and wraps round so slab building is essentially it's essentially like constructing 3d things out of bits of paper I quite like to think of it that way. It's like a nice way to go from 2D to 3D. So you're creating 2D shapes that you build a 3D yeah, shape. Yeah, um, yeah. It's quite a difficult process to describe without waving your hands around. Yeah. <laughs> Realise that no one, uh, <laughs> no one that's listening will be able to see my hand gestures, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, if I'm doing that sort of technique or any other sort of hand-building technique, I can have a drawing, I can go in, I can roll out my clay, start, leave it for, depending on how warm it is, so if it's like a warm day, you can leave it for like an hour, a couple hours, and it'll get to a stage called leather hard. So when some of the moisture is evaporated out off it, and it makes it a bit stiffer, then it means it holds its shape a bit more when you put the clay on its end. Um, so you sort of leave it for a couple hours, cut out your shapes, and then start building the thing which can take anything from sort of an hour to three or four hours really depending how elaborate the shape is and at that point it would then dry out then I'd sort of smooth it back with a sponge a day or two later once it's dried out completely and at that point I then start drawing the patterns onto it it then gets bisque fired so So that's the first firing so it's a thousand degrees celsius um, it's bisque fired so it takes about 14 hours to fire then it takes about 12 hours to cool down so you can get it back out bring it out then I would glaze it which is pretty quick and then once everything's glazed they go back in the kiln again and get fired for another 8 hours which um, I fire to 1240 degrees celsius and then it then takes about 12 hours again to cool down and then you've got a finished thing so if it's a one-off thing like that, I could make it in about maybe about a week, two weeks. Um, but then for my sort of main collection of stuff, it's made in a different way. It's um, slip cast using Parian porcelain. So to make that sort of from scratch, like from the very, very beginning, I need to have a plaster mould that I make or has made 
and then a plaster model and then plaster moulds get made from that. So the ones I've got just now, the pots that I make, they're um, plaster that's been turned on a lathe to get this sort of cylindrical shape. So that's kind of the positive, I suppose, the model. And then once that plaster dries out, you coat it in soft soap and then pour more plaster on top to get your mould, which is like the negative, I suppose. And once it's dried out, which takes a week or two, you can then start casting from it. And once you start casting, it's pretty quick. So I've got my moulds there ready. And when I go to make something, I pour my parry and clay into it, let the clay stay in there for about eight minutes, empty it back out, and in that eight minutes, the clay sort of formed a skin where it's been in contact with the plaster, so the plaster draws moisture out from the clay and it creates a skin. So the longer you leave it, the thicker the walls get. And once it dries out, I sort of take that out and then from there the process is the same as other stuff, sort of smooth it off with a sponge. And then each pot takes about an hour to decorate the patterns onto because they're all hand-drawn direct onto the clay. And then you go through all the same sort of firing processes as well. So, yeah, quite a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, what sort of size of runs are you, you doing? Fairly small. Um, yeah, it depends if um, if it's sort of an order from a stockist. It depends what they want. So if I get an order in from a stockist, I've generally got like an eight-week lead time, um, which is quite long, but it's just because... Takes takes a while to make everything really so. But are we talking like five, ten, hundred, two hundred? Oh, I've never had hundreds. I'd think I would be sort of torn between being overjoyed and absolutely distraught. <laughs> so usually when I get an order and the biggest size it'll be is like per pot, it'll be maybe like eight per size of pot. And then for the necklaces it'll maybe be sort of like 20 necklaces or something, so quite small batches. And the necklaces are made slightly differently again. Um, so for them, I pour out pour out a sheet of clay onto a plaster bat and then all the necklaces are hand cut. So I get the sheet of clay and then just use a Stanley knife to cut out the shape. And then again, they're all sort of decorated by hand, um, just direct onto the clay, and then they're fired twice as well. Um, so yeah, thankfully... Thankfully, orders aren't so huge and unmanageable that I can't fulfil them. <laughs> so, yeah, I think if someone was to get in touch and say, we really want 100 pots, I'd be absolutely delighted in one sense, but also, like, OK, it's going to take me a while. <laughs> I definitely need to send that out in batches. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's what I was going to ask. That was my next question. Is like, OK, so say you this went to the next level. And people were coming in of orders of hundreds. Yeah. How do you maintain that handmade quality and the finish that you've sort of built everything upon, um, but actually fulfil orders of much greater sizes? Yeah. Um, <laughs> something that I'm kind of sort of trying to figure out a bit just now because I'm at a point where I want to grow my business and I want it to be more sustainable and actually have like a livable income but in order to do that I kind of need to be chasing bigger orders and yeah having more stockists and just having yeah having them placed like an order for 100 nexus or 100 pots or whatever um 
But in terms of the time and my resources, that's quite unrealistic to be able to do that. So I need to figure out how how I get around that, really. Um, so something that I've sort of considered doing, but I can't quite decide if I want to do it if it sits right as using transfers instead of hand-drawn everything individually. So they would be made from, they'd be made from my original hand drawings, and then screen printed, and then I'd apply those screen printed transfers onto the pots. So it would reduce the decorating time from about an hour to about ten minutes. So it would be a huge time saver, um, and I kind of need to figure out how that sits with me and kind of. Because I think the the hand-drawn aspect of it is something that is so important to me. But at the same time, if I'm using all my available time to draw into pots and I'm a one-woman show, then that doesn't leave any time to make the pots to draw into, to develop new ideas, to be sort of going after those stockists and those orders or doing any promotion or any of that stuff. So... Yeah, it's kind of a bit of a, feels like a bit of a grapple between what I want to do and what I need to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's maybe something that in the future I need to consider. And I've been sort of taking the last few months to work on making new collections and kind of figure out how I can keep that handmade element and, but so that it sits alongside stuff that maybe uses transfers of sort of screen printed transfers of hand drawings. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of taken the shape of I've just been developing a new collection of work which uses copper luster on them. So they're, that's work that's going to sit at a slightly higher price point than other stuff because it takes more time and it's more expensive to do. Um, but it also looks amazing. <laughs> So again, excuse my ignorance, what is copper luster? Copper luster is, um, you also get gold luster and it's precious metal that you can brush onto the ceramics. So it, um, I was going to say I've got one on, but again, no one can see it. <laughs> um, yeah, it sort of, it goes on for a third fire and after it's been glaze fired, you put the luster on and it goes on looking a bit like caramel. Probably the inside of like a Snickers bar or something that you've painted onto some ceramics, and it comes out this incredible shiny copper. So it is, um, it is real copper. It's just liquid form, and then it comes out shiny. It's great. <laughs> so incredibly expensive as well. Yeah. It's um, sort of fifty gram, fifty pounds for five grams, wow. and it comes in a tiny little vial, and you have to. Be extra careful with it that you don't knock it over the whole bench, which I haven't done, thankfully. Then you get gold luster as well, which is even more expensive. Platinum luster. Um, you can get ones like that are just coloured as well. And then sort of mother of pearl luster. All sorts. So would you consider like even making just one-offs that are at a much higher price point? Then? Yeah, yeah. So... um I've been starting to do that a little bit more and I've found that at markets they tend to be the things that people are really drawn to. So sometimes it's just that they're drawn to that but then buy something else that's slightly cheaper 
or other times someone will come in and just be like, yep, I'm drawn to that and I want to, which is nice. Um, at the moment, my one-off things aren't at a much higher price point, but they're at a slightly higher price point. And then the new copper work that I'm doing at, there's sort of two different ranges, so they've not officially launched it. I've had them at markets and things with me, but I'm going to be launching them to on my website and to Stockists in kind of September time. And they set higher price points as well, so for a necklace that has got details of copper luster on it, that's sort of £65 compared to £40 for one that's just hand-drawn in black. And then for ones that are fully copper luster, the whole pattern is drawn in luster, they set it like about 140 So there's that kind of tier, tier of different prices that hopefully means that there's something, something for everyone, really. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a model that works for loads of people. Like you think about like all those um, like Ferrari perfumes and things yeah. like that, where you have the <laughs> or yeah clothing lines and things like that, where there's an accessible level for everyone. Yeah. Um, if you want to like have part of that brand, if you want to own something by that brand, absolutely, yeah. yeah. That's my next uh, my next move actually. Steph Little perfumes. <laughs> I think they're going to be a really big hit. <laughs> Although I found out recently that the necklaces, since they're unglazed on the back, then they actually, if you rub a little bit of essential oil on them, it sort of retains the smell for a few days. So maybe I, maybe I should get into the perfume business. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, because they've got this incredible smooth feel, and, and then if they've got that little bit of oil on them, they've sort of got this nice smell as well, and it's quite it's quite comforting. It's so kind of strange. Scented jewellery. Yeah. yeah. There you go. So you wouldn't have to wear perfume, you just wear it no, around your neck. So right? your smelly jewellery. <laughs> <laughs> I can't promise that you won't look very strange if you smell it in public, though. It's given a wee sniff. <laughs> so, um, one of the projects you've been involved with recently, which seems completely different from your other work is the the, the open close project mm-hmm. and we are sort of door buddies if you like <laughs> As, uh, yeah our doors sort of sit side by side um and the Stobswell trail yep so i mean what what made you apply for the open close project i kind of wanted the challenge of doing something on a, a different scale um and to yeah just kind of get get the opportunity to draw something that was, yeah, one on a much bigger scale, but also that wasn't um, kind of like a product, I suppose. So, um, yeah, it's kind of the door that I designed is based on some railings on Arbroath Road that I used to walk past when I stayed on Baxter Park Terrace. I used to walk past them every day and I always loved the shape with it and I always kind of like, had in the back of my mind that I wanted to do something with that design of that railing, but I hadn't, I'd never figured out what that thing was. So when I seen that, I was like, this is this is the perfect opportunity for that. So it kind of combines the, the shapes from those railings with the sort of mustard shades that I'm known for using on like, the rim of my pots and the cords of some of my necklaces, and then just some really big dashes that... Say big dash, big compared to the size that are on the paws. Still quite small when you're doing a whole door of them. Like, oh my gosh, so many dashes. 
um, yeah, so it kind of was just something that I thought, yeah, it looks fun. Because I actually, I'd never noticed the railings until I saw the door. Yeah. So I saw the door and then and then I made the actual connection, which is awesome. It wasn't really till I um, stood back and looked at the door when I was finished it and realised that since it's bright yellow and it's got this big triangle in the middle, so it kind of looks a little bit like an Illuminati symbol, but also that yellow kind of makes it look like a big nacho. <laughs> <laughs> like some sort of natural Illuminati <laughs> which I'm not like I'm not disappointed about it it kind of ties back to that food theme so just run with that <laughs> and do you know any of the backstory of the railings themselves and the pattern that was used there? No not really I was trying to find out a bit about it when I was applying and it was really difficult to actually find any information I think it used to be a mill but um, yeah, I think it used to be a jute mill but I can't I couldn't really figure out or find much information on it. I know it's now some houses at the other side of those railings. <laughs> but yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing the natural Illuminati badges and <laughs> range coming out. You'll need to look out for them because they'll be highly secretive. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, collaborations and using new materials and working in different ways, is that something that you're trying more now? Yeah, and it's something that I really want to do more of in the future um, especially sort of doing collaborations with sort of organisations um, to kind of make I'd really love to be working with people to make bespoke projects for them um, yeah bespoke products and kind of working on projects together but also sort of collaborating with other brands that make make things that are different from things I make so maybe if it was someone who was like a furniture designer, for example, that makes something totally different to my ceramics, but to be able to sort of collaborate with them to put my patterns on things, because I just love drawing patterns, but also just to achieve something bigger than I could do on my own, essentially, because I have the skills I have, but I don't know how to, you know, upholster a couch, but someone else does. <laughs> um, yeah, I think like my my sort of dream collaborator would be somewhere like the Barbican. Just those like great, great strong shapes and like brutalist architecture. Kind of taking inspiration from somewhere like that would be the dream. <laughs> and I mean in terms of the what's your feeling at the moment about the city and the, the sort of creative community that's within that? Yeah, it's a really exciting time to be in Dundee, I think. Um, when I first moved here, I sort of didn't... I didn't anticipate that I'd sort of still be here ten years later, to be honest. Um, and I, I don't really think I knew where I'd end up. I knew I didn't want to go back to Falkirk, where I'm from, but I think I always thought that I'd maybe end up going to Glasgow or to Edinburgh or something, and then sort of the longer I was in Dundee the more and more I fell in love with it. I remember just sort of being, like I probably, I must have been in like first or second year at art school and sort of standing one day at the traffic lights just at the overgate, standing there waiting on the lights to change and being able to see the tea and just sort of thinking like, oh, actually, yeah, quite like it here. <laughs> um, and I think the, I think the tea is actually like a huge draw to the city for me, just being so close to that big expanse of water um, 
and just that it's got this kind of like very common feel about it. I think the creative community in Dundee's great. It's quite a small scene, but it's a really thriving one. There's such a strong design and art scene in Dundee and it's not pretentious as well, which is great. It feels so accessible um, and it feels like everyone's kind of up for helping each other out and supporting each other, which I think probably isn't isn't the same in every city. Um, yes, I think that's kind of one of the huge, huge appeals for me. It's also a lot cheaper to be an artist here than it is some other places. <laughs> I don't think I could... Um, I don't think I could sustain being a maker at the level I am just now in somewhere like Edinburgh, for example, where I would definitely need to be working so many more hours at a part-time job just to pay my rent. Whereas here it's it's a lot more achievable to do. Mm-hmm. So before we finish, um, can you recommend any things that you've been watching, reading, listening to recently? Yeah. Um, so I listen to a lot of podcasts when I'm in my studio. And, you know, obviously this is a great podcast. <laughs> so good one to listen to. But, uh, yeah, a lot of the other ones I listen to when I'm in the studio are... Um, one called Don't Salt My Game, which I totally love and is quite irrelevant. I suppose it's um it's actually about nutrition. Okay. But I totally love it. Um and my friend was on it recently who I met when he stayed in Dundee. So it was so nice to listen to him in my studio and he gave me just the world's most bizarre shout out on it where he mentioned they do a, a round at the end of it called That's My Jam. And his sort of jam was um, a mar- like a Dundee marmalade pot that I'd made and put on Instagram. So it was a sort of like literal jam jar. Um, but then he also described me as uh, sand- like the smoothest person you'll ever meet um, and just said that um, if you imagine the Fonz it has his- had his whole skin replaced by sandpaper, <laughs> that's, that's uh, as smooth as Steph is. I was like, thanks, thanks, pal. <laughs> so... I'm getting called the Sandpaper Fonz now, which is great. That's yeah. a good, like, Twitter handle. <laughs> Sandpaper Fonz, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, that a lot. And then I also listened to... My dad wrote a porno. Yeah. Although I had to stop listening to that in the studio because I kept laughing too much. I was like, I can't, I can't do these intricate hand-drawn patterns <laughs> when I'm laughing too much. <laughs> and um, I also try and listen to sort of a bit more kind of functional podcast I suppose so ones like uh, me and Orla which is talking a lot about marketing for creative businesses um, and one called Explore Your Enthusiasm as well which is another one that's kind of aimed at like small design creative businesses and sort of talks a lot about marketing and finding your audience and all those practical things that are really good to know. (laughs) Awesome Um, so if people do want to go and find your work and mm-hmm. see your stuff online or maybe in person, where do they do that? Online? You can go to uh, my website, which is stephliddle.com You can find me on Instagram at at steph.liddle Make sure you get the dot in there because I realised at the weekend that I just had a fresh batch of business cards printed that missed out the dot. <laughs> Whole 500 of them. So you're in there with a pen just putting the <laughs> yep. dot in. <laughs> 
And then um, if you want to find them physically, you can find me at markets. Um, so coming up, I'll be at Abernate Brewery this weekend um, on Sunday. And then... I so by the time the podcast goes out, that will be passed. passed. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> next up for markets, um, I'll have... I'll be at Bowhouse in Anstruther with Tea Green Events in July and in August. Um, and then in shops, you can find me locally in Dundee in DCA Shop and in Pretty Fly in Broughty Ferry. They've both got some stuff. And further afield, there's a, a list of talkers on my website, so you can find me everywhere from... Well, not everywhere, but a select range of places <laughs> from Dundee to London. So. <laughs> some places in between (laughs) that's great thank you very much so that was Steph Um, thank you to her Um, yeah do go and check out her work if you're not familiar with it already or if um, you're in and about get along to one of the the tea green pop-up events and or drop in the DCA shop it's all in there um, so yeah that's it if you're new to the podcast or you don't already it's at CCC Dundee on Twitter and Instagram and it's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash CCC Dundee and we're also available on all good podcasting platforms um, yeah you may as well subscribe and just get it all the time but yeah as I said before at the start um, next week yeah I'm going to be joined by Jan Sesnick who's artist musician um mad inventor so until then goodbye